We hear a lot about how the Buddha taught that you should develop a non-judging mind. In some cases, that's presented as the path. Mindfulness is defined as a non-judging mind, mind that makes no distinctions between what is good and bad is equal to all things. Sometimes we hear that the non-judging mind is the goal of the, the path. We're here to get into the present moment, learn to accept the present moment as it is, and then we won't be suffering. Now, none of this does justice to what the Buddha actually taught. You, saw, you did, looked at the readings, you may have noticed the verses we had in the Dhammapada. These come from a section called The Judge. It's a whole series of verses on how you should judge yourself in terms of judging your actions, how you should judge other people in terms of whether they're people that you can trust or not. When he talks about the stages in which you should approach someone who might be a teacher and then learn from that teacher, first you have to judge the, the individual. Is this someone that you can trust? If you remember, remember from the readings, he said basically you look for someone who would not get you to do something that was not in your own best interest. You, of course, you observe other people in their interaction with that teacher as well. See if you would get those people to do something that was not in their best interest. Secondly, does the, would the, the teacher have the greed, aversion, or delusion to claim to know things that he or she did not know? In either of those cases, if the, if the answer is yes, you find somebody else. Once you found somebody you can trust, then you listen to the Dharma. You ponder the Dharma to see how it makes sense. And then the Buddha says you give rise to a sense of willingness, that you are willing to take it on as a standard to guide your actions. And the first step after taking, being willing to take it on, having a desire to practice, is judging your actions against the standards that the Buddha teaches, or against the standards that that teacher teaches. And you have to see where your actions measure up and where they don't measure up. And then where they don't measure up, you try to bring them up to standard. And then based on that, then you make the exertion that gives rise to awakening. And you look at the Buddhist teachings in general, it's all, all about passing judgment as to what to do and what not to do. In fact, he said that was one of the teacher's main duties, was to give you a sense of that it does make a difference. Some actions do qualify as things you really should do. Other actions are things you should not do. He gives you some basic outlines, basic guidelines. So you don't have to keep on re reinventing the Dharma wheel every time you make a decision. But then he also gives you standards for how to come to some conclusion of your own as you're looking at your own circumstances as to what you should and should not be doing. And the Buddha is trying to get you to pass judgment, not in the sense of passing a final judgment on yourself or passing a final judgment on other people. You have to think of where he's coming from. I think Buddhism is interesting. It's one of the few religions where the founder of the religion admitted to being imperfect. He came from a place of imperfection. He knows what it's like to make mistakes. But he also learned from his own practice how to recognize mistakes and how to correct for them. That's the skill that he wants to teach us as well, because that's how we gain awakening. So we're passing judgment basically on a work in progress. Like when you're in the kitchen and you're fixing something, you taste it and say, hmm, too salty, too sweet, too whatever. Okay, then you make changes. You don't just throw it out and start, from, start over. You make adjustments as you go along. And you look at the basic teachings that he said are categorical. It's interesting that of the 
all the Buddhist teachings, there was only one set of, two sets of teachings that he said were categorical, i.e. true and beneficial across the board. And both of those teachings come in pairs. In other words, the skillful pair paired with the unskillful. In the first, in the first instance, it's the basic principle that unskillful actions and thought, word, and deed should be abandoned. Skillful actions and thought, word, and deed should be developed. So immediately you have to pass judgment as to these things I'm thinking of doing, thought, word, and deed. How do I tell whether they're skillful? How do I tell whether they're not so I can know what to do with them? You have to pass judgment on your intentions. The second group of teachings that are categorical would be the Four Noble Truths. And again, this is a dual teaching. You've got the cause of suffering on one side, which is something you want to abandon so that you can... So you don't have to keep on creating suffering. And then you have to develop the path on the other side. Years back, I was asked to give a talk at UCLA. They were doing a special series of um, classes in adult education in preparation for a visit that the Dalai Lama was going to make. And the theme of the, the course was um, topics that all Buddhist groups have in common because the Buddha... Dalai Lama, when he came, was going to give a Shakyamuni initiation. Now we're just going to get the, the spirit of Shakyamuni to initiate us. I have no idea. But they asked, they asked me to give a talk on the Four Noble Truths. I was the first one in the series, so I sort of kicked off the series. And the moderator was someone from the Tibetan tradition. So after I gave my explanation of the Four Noble Truths, he pulled up a chair, sat down next to me, and he turned to the audience. He said, now what you just heard was a dualistic interpretation of the Dalai. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll be getting to the really good stuff, which is non-dualistic. Yeah. And I said, oh, come on, you, there's some things, like some areas of life where it's good to be dualistic. You know, after all, suffering and the end of suffering are two different things. And if you have a surgeon operating on your brain, you want him to know or her to know which is your right brain and which is your left brain. Um, that didn't stop him kept on going about how non-dualism was innately superior to dualism. So I broke one of my rules. I hauled back as if I were going to hit him. And he jumped. <laughs> and I said, I thought you were non-dualistic. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're dualistic and proud of the fact. <laughs> So those are the teachings that the Buddha said are true across the board, and there is, there is a choice that you have to make there. And to make the choice, you have to use your powers of judgment, looking at your intentions, learning how to read your intentions as to what's going to be skillful and what's not. And if you're not sure, it looks like it could be skillful, then you go ahead and do it, as the Buddha taught his son. Act on it. And while you're acting, if any unskillful act results come out, you stop. And now you take that knowledge to learn, okay, I don't do that again. If it seems to be okay while you're doing it, then you continue doing it. Then when the action is done, then you reflect on the long-term consequences. And if you realize the long-term consequences were unskillful, again, you resolve not to repeat that mistake. This is how you overcome your delusion. But you have to learn how to judge your actions and judge the results of your actions if you want to learn the Dharma. There's one passage in, in a very obscure sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha is giving a list of things that nourish other things, like this. what nourishes beauty, what nourishes virtue. And then there's one, so what nourishes the Dharma? And what nourishes the Dharma is commitment and reflection. You commit yourself to doing what you think to be the right thing, and then you reflect, is it really right? 
All of this requires judgment. Now, aside from these two across-the-board principles, the Buddha said were categorical, there are other teachings that are appropriate for different times and different places. And here you have to use your powers of judgment and say, is this the right time for this teaching? Is it not the right time for this teaching? One of the primary examples is the teaching that's usually called the three characteristics, but the Buddha never called it that. These were three perceptions that you apply to things, the perception of inconstancy, stress, not self. And there are a couple of sutras where it's, he makes it obvious that you don't apply these in all circumstances. One is if you're trying to decide what kind of action to do. Someone once asked a young monk, what is, it, what is the result of action? And the young monk said the result of action is stress. Dukkha, stress, pain. And the this other person who was a wanderer in another sect said, you know, you better check that out with the Buddha. That's not what I've heard from other Buddhist monks. So the young monk goes to see Ananda because he knows if he sees the Buddha on his own, he's going to be scared. Um, so he take, takes Ananda as his shield, goes in to see the Buddha. And tells him what, the, what he had said. And the Buddha says, no, when you're talking about action, you don't talk about all action being stressful. And then another monk was listening and said, well, wait a minute. Isn't it the fact that all feelings are stressful and all actions result in feelings, so all actions would result in stress? The Buddha said, this is not the time for that. This is the time to ask about which, which actions lead to pleasure, which actions lead to pain, which actions lead to a mixture of pleasure and pain. So that would be a case where you would not use the teaching of dukkha. There are other cases where, there are other cases where the Buddha says you don't focus on anicca, you don't focus on, on anatta. These are perceptions that you choose to apply at different times, and we'll be getting into that a, bit, a little bit later in the afternoon. There's a story that one of the John Chan students tells, I think his name was John Jundi. He was riding in a car one time, in an old truck, and the truck was really, really dirty. They couldn't help but mention to the driver, the owner of the truck, um, don't you think you should clean your truck every now and then? <laughs> and as he says, as as the John said, well, it's the case of the right teaching, but the wrong time. <laughs> so you have to choose. You have to use your powers of discernment to judge when a particular teaching is appropriate or not. Well, some of the general implications of these points that I've been making here: one, you are free to make choices, and you can re read the results of your choices. You act and then you can look at what's actually happening as a result of what you've done, which means you're responsible because you can tell that that particular action will lead to a particular re action, result. You have to take responsibility for the results. And one of the big issues in, in Western philosophy, especially ethics, is if you're judging an action, do you judge it by the intention or do you judge it by the results? That's basically thinking in the terms of final judgment. You're, you're called up before God. Okay. You know, what, what, you, what can you claim? Were my intentions right or, my, or are the results right or wrong or whatever? And in Buddhism, we basically say both count. Your intentions count and then the results count. Because you have to learn how to read the results and then you use that to feed back to for the intentions for, for succeeding actions. So we're, we're working on a skill here, working on developing, developing ourselves on the path. Another one of the implications here is that your past karma does not determine everything. And this could be a topic for an entire afternoon, but basically the Buddha is saying that 
the contact that comes in at the senses is the result of your past karma. But prior to that, if you look at dependent arising, contact comes about halfway through the list. There are other factors that come prior to contact, and these are basically your ways of talking to yourself, the perceptions you hold in mind, the intentions you hold in mind, the acts of attention you hold in mind. And the whole issue of con- um, confirmation bias is something that you have some biases that you may be bringing in that would become under perception. And these are the things that are going to determine whether you suffer from that contact or not. In other words, these are the skills that, or lack of skills that you're bringing to any particular sensory contact. You want to learn to look at those, because those are the things that are really important in shaping whether you're going to suffer from a particular set of circumstances or not. So part of what's coming into the present moment is results of past actions, but choices you're making as you approach these things, those are things you can choose to change. This is where the element of freedom comes in in the path. If we didn't have that element of freedom, there would be no path to the end of practice, no path to the end of suffering. So we're free in that sense. So we're not just taught to just accept causes and conditions. There are some causes and conditions that come in, but then the question is, what are you going to do with them? You've got to think of yourself as a cook. You go into the kitchen. If you're a good cook, you can think of something to do with that lettuce. Make it good. Nobody knows nobody has to know. The famous Julia Child incident where you know, she, she drops, the, drops the, the roast on the floor and then compensates for it and takes it out. Nobody knows. So in the present moment, instead of just thinking, well, these are the causes and conditions I have here, you also have to think about what are the choices I have? What are, what are the skills I can bring to this? This is one of the reasons why we meditate, is that we're trying to develop a whole new series of skills that we can bring to the present moment, ways of talking to ourselves about what's going on, perceptions we can hold in mind, things that we should pay attention to, intentions that we should or should not encourage. We learn all these things through the meditation, and then we can apply them as we go through daily life. What this means is we have to make value judgments as to which actions are better than others, which actions that we should encourage, which ones we shouldn't. It also though, means that we are free to pass judgment on things. And that freedom is part of what allows us to again, reach the end of suffering. So that's just kind of a general principle as how you judge yourself. As for, as for judging others, excuse me, there's a gen, general principle on judging. As for judging others as to whether it would be, they'd be good teachers or good people to emulate. You tend to follow the example of the people you associate with. So you want to look for good people to hang out with. And here's the case where the Buddha would advise, says, as you remember from one of the verses and the readings, which is that you don't be in a hurry to judge others. You take your time. You watch the other person carefully. You are someone who is knowledgeable, truthful, and compassionate. Think about those questions that Buddha has you ask about the teacher. Knowledgeable, someone whose knowledge of the Dharma is deep, they can explain subtle things and, and, it, and it resonates. Um, they are truthful that they wouldn't claim to know things they don't know. And they're compassionate, they would not try to get anybody to do anything that would, do, that would be to that person's um, detriment. There are other passages in the canon, so I didn't have enough room for all of them on the, in the readings, where the Buddha talks about how you judge other people. There's one series where he talks about how you judge a person's virtue, 
is you spend a lot of time with that person. So you notice, okay, does this person behave in a virtuous way? Or do they cut corners in the precepts here and there? Um, you, want to, you want to know the person's purity by in terms of their dealings. Now, in the canon, they explain that as this person, when he's with one group of people, will, will espouse certain standards. And then when he's with another group of people, he will espouse the same standards. That's purity, as it's defined in the canon. You can also be simply with, you know, if you're, if you're working on a deal, you're buying something from somebody, you're going to find out a lot about their purity by how they have dealings with you. If you get into an argument with somebody, this is where you find out about how pure they are in terms of how they, how they conduct the argument. You want somebody who conducts an argument in a fair way. There is, there's a large series of passages in the canon where the Buddha talks about people who are worth talking to and people who are not worth talking to. There's a sense of people who would argue with you. And, you know, they, they pull all kinds of sleights of hand and other tricky things. You think, I better not talk with this person, leave them alone. You want to judge the person's endurance in terms of dealing with worldly conditions, in terms of loss of status, loss of, loss of wealth, um, criticism, and physical pain. How do they handle these things? In terms of the discernment is how the person responds to questions. You're looking for someone who basically has conviction in the Buddha's awakening, someone who's virtuous, someone who's generous, and someone who has to... Discernment. The, 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 in, the definition of discernment is really interesting there. The Buddha talks about the penetrative knowledge of arising and passing away. Now, Jambasana tells a great story about going home to Canada after being in Thailand for a couple of years. And his brother asked him, okay, what did you learn over there from those Buddhists? And, and Jambasana said, everything is impermanent. And the brother said, duh. <laughs> So you have to go back and say, when the Buddha says penetrative knowledge of arising and passing, as I said earlier, as you're judging your own actions, you're judging them both by the intentions behind them and by the results they give. Not because you're trying to come to a final judgment, but because you want to learn. When I acted on this intention, where did it lead? So the next time, if it led to something bad, the next time that intention comes up, to say, no, I know it's not going to go to a good place. There's another passage where the Buddha himself said when he got on the correct path to the practice, when he learned how to d divide his thoughts into two types, or the, the type, types that were based on sensuality, ill will, harmfulness. And then those were those that were based on renunciation, non-ill will, harmlessness. And the first group, he said, he had to treat them the way a cowherd would treat cows during the rainy season. The rice is growing in the fields. You've got your cows. You cannot let the cows get into the rice fields because going to be, there's going to be trouble. And so if you see them heading into the rice fields, you've got to beat them back. In the same way, if you see that your thoughts are going in the wrong direction, beat them back. That sounds totally aggressive, right? Remember, the Buddha is a noble warrior. <laughs> Beating them back doesn't mean you just, you just deny that they're there. You cannot deny them. You have to say, okay, I know this is an unskillful thought. I've got to understand where it's coming from. So I can figure out what would be a good way to undercut its appeal. I was going to save this for later, but it's good to get it out right now. The Buddha says there are basically five steps to dealing with anything unskilled in the mind. First step is to see it arise. 
As, and as it's arising, ask yourself, what is it coming from? What's the trigger? He uses the word samudhya, which means, was translated as origination. When he uses that word, it means one, a cause, and then two, cause coming from within the mind. So what inside my own mind incited me to go for that? And then secondly, you want to see it pass away. Sometimes anger comes and we think, I've been angry for the past 24 hours. But we're not angry for the whole 24 hours, right? Now your body may be telling you you're angry for the whole 24 hours. That's when you have to learn how to not listen to everything the body tells you. When you get, have a burst of anger, hormones come into your system. When the anger goes away, the hormones don't go away. They hang around. And then you say, oh my, my gosh, my, my heart is still racing. I must still be angry. And you get angry again. You have to learn how to read that and say, wait a minute, my body is telling me I was angry. But I don't necessarily have to pick up the anger again. Because that's the next thing the Buddha wants, wants you to ask. If you do pick it up again, why? What was the allure? What led you to want to go for that particular unskillful state or do that un a particular unskillful action? And here the allure can be anything. Sometimes there's a, a certain kind of pleasure that comes out of it. Sometimes there's a sense of obligation. I have to do this. I don't know any other way of reacting to a situation like this. Here again, it's good to hang around good people and, who are advancing the Dharma because they give you new ideas about what to say. How many of you ever read the book, See More in Introduction? By J.D. Salinger. You know? Do you remember the, the one thing you wanted to know about in that book? There's a point where Seymour says something that the parents have given his younger brother a bike. The kid has gone out in the central park with a bike. He meets up a stranger. The stranger wants the bike, so he gives the bike to the stranger. Comes back, the parents are livid. You don't just give bikes away to strangers. you know. And then Seymour comes in and he says something, which brings the family back together again. We don't know what he said. That's the kind of thing you want to learn here. Listen, listen when somebody has something really wise that can bring harmony to a group, or some approach that would bring peace to a group. I had a similar situation where the, the, the young man who had ordained as a monk for a while, whether John Fu, had spent some time earlier as a John Lee's amanuensis. When John Lee would write books, he wouldn't write, sit down and write the books. He would close his eyes, get into meditation, and dictate. And so this particular man had done the uh, the book, Keeping the Breath in Mind. He told me about one time when he was staying with the John Fuang, that one day John Fuang had, had really dressed down one of the younger monks at the monastery. And the monk went back and told his friends, well, I'm going to go beat him up tomorrow. And so our, our, our guy was upset. So he sort of hovers around at John, John Fuang's hut. And sure enough, the next day, the, the other monk comes up the, the stairs. And he said he couldn't hear the conversation, but it was very low tone. And all of a sudden, the young monk broke down and cried and asked John Lee for his forgiveness. Of course, you really want to know, what did he say? <laughs> Those are the sorts of things you want to look for when you're, getting, when you're hanging around with good people, because they give you new ideas about how to act in certain situations. So you feel that you're not obligated to fall into old patterns that you have. And then, and, and once you see what the allure is, then you see the drawbacks of that unskillful state, and you see that they, you know, that the drawbacks way outweigh the allure. That's when you can let it go. You develop a sense of dispassion. 
support. And this, this passion is, the, is what liberates you from it. So you're not just saying, okay, I'll never think that again. You have to have a sense that this is really not worth it. The other night I gave two examples of how you might feel this passion. Um, this passion, is, as the Buddha said, is the highest dharma. Um, and for a lot of us, I say, I'll wait for that later. Because oh. it sounds kind of dull. I think about it like this. It's more like growing up. I think about growing, outgrowing two different games. One is tic-tac-toe. When you're a little kid, tic-tac-toe is fascinating. But then you reach a point where you realize you've figured out all the possible moves. And then it loses its appeal. The other way of outgrowing a game would be chess. Realize, okay, I could spend a lot of time mastering chess. But what would I gain out of it? Aside from just winning the game. But you win the game, what does that accomplish? And so much time and energy would go into that. It's, is it worth it or not? I had a young man coming through the monastery just the other day. He was on his way to Wat Chan to ordain. Apparently he had been on, he was Israeli, and he had been on the Israeli handball team. And it looked like he was going to have a career as a hand, professional handball player. There was, they went to this one tournament, and they did way much better than they thought they ever would. And he woke up the next morning and realized, is that all there is, just winning? This isn't worth it. So I was going to become a monk. That's dispassion. That's the attitude you want to have. It's just not worth it anymore. You've outgrown it. You've found something better. So as I said, the Buddha got on the path when he was able to divide his thoughts into two sorts. As for the thoughts that were skillful, he said he, he would let them wander wherever they wanted to like a cow herd during the dry season. When the rice has been kept, been harvested, kept and everything, there's no danger if the cows go into the rice fields because there's nothing in the rice fields for them to, to destroy. So you just lie down under a tree, let the thoughts wander around. But however, he said, you realize that if you think all day, it's going to tire the mind. When the mind gets tired, it's going to start thinking unskillful things. So you learn how to, the next step is to put the mind into concentration. That's basic level. But as I said, this goes all the way up to the level of dispassion where you're having to pass judgment on things as to what's worth doing, what's not. It's important to notice that when the Buddha talks about dispassion as being the highest, one of the highest steps on the path, you may remember there's that series of um, lessons for Gautami that the Buddha gave as to what counts as dharma and what doesn't count as dharma. And dharma is what would lead to dispassion rather than passion. It also leads to being unfettered rather than being fettered. And this is something that's always paired throughout the canon, which is that dispassion is what frees you from the things that would tie the mind down. We, we tend, as I said, many of us tend to have a negative connotation to dispassion, but for the Buddha, he wants you to have a very positive, which is that by outgrowing these things, you free yourself. So those are some of the general principles I wanted to talk about in terms of the, this, this topic of learning how to judge. We're doing this not for the sake of being mean and nasty judgers. We're doing this because we see that we're making mistakes and we want to learn how not to make mistakes. So you find somebody who's good at not making mistakes, you try to learn from that person. And then you learn how to read your own actions and get a sense of where you have been unskillful and where you can become more skillful.
It's in this way that you grow on the path. Are there any questions, either about what I said or about what were in the readings? Mm-hmm. Well, before you get to dispassion, you've got to learn how to create a sense of well-being. So you have something better than your old, your old pursuits of happiness. Because your old pursuits of happiness, the Buddha is basically telling you, hey, you're looking for happiness the wrong way. Here's something better. Remember years back when I, when I was first teaching the Four Noble Truths down in Southern California, which is a, you know, it's a tough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we, you go through the Four Noble Truths, you get to the truth of cessation first, nirvana, and then you get to the, four, the Eightfold Path with jhana at the end. Now, jhana sounds really cool, but cessation, nirvana, and nirvana doesn't sound all that interesting. But so the Buddha is basically saying, hey, look, learn how to create a sense of well-being through concentration. Pursue that. Learn to appreciate that. And don't be afraid of getting stuck on it. I don't know how many Vipassana books start out by saying, no, watch out for a jhana. It's a death trap. You'll get stuck and you will never get out. And the Buddha never said that. He said, look, it's part of the path. Because if you don't have the pleasure that comes from a settled mind, you're going to get going back to things that you know are unskillful, but they, they offer you some pleasure. A question in the back? It's a different term entirely. In fact, we're going to be getting to um, issues of equanimity a bit later on. But to give you a preview, equanimity is basically when you are emotionally on an even keel about something. Something good happens, something bad happens, you you don't react. It's like the Buddhist initial meditation instructions to the sun Rahula, which is make your mind like earth. People throw discussing things on the earth, but the earth doesn't react one way or another. Now, dispassion is basically seeing that you have been involved in a certain activity and you had some passion for it. You liked doing it because you thought the results were worth it. And so now the Buddha is basically trying to change your, your, um, your evaluation when you see, okay, well, you've got something better. It's not worth it. And as I said, you've outgrown it. Now, you don't just Tell yourself, okay, the Buddha says this is something I should have dispassion for, so I'll have to be dispassion for it. That doesn't work. You've got to see there really is something better. It's like the cat I had when I was in college. I fed it oatmeal. Because that's all I could afford. And then when I went away for the, the summer, I left the cat with a friend. And the friend introduced the cat to cat food. (laughs) And so when I got the cat back in the fall, she wouldn't touch oatmeal ever again. (laughs) That's dispassion. I don't know what karma I've got. I made 
for myself. <laughs> Mm -hmm. well, just tell yourself first look at okay what did I do that was wrong how did I misread the situation and there will be cases when hey it is all the other person but they reacted in a way that was out that was unreasonable but that means so for the next time you treat you to deal with that person you're going to be careful this person tends to fly off the handle or whatever the, whatever the problem was so here it'd be like you know, being a teacher and realizing well, there's some kids that you can be strict with, other kids you have to be more gentle with. We have to learn how to read that. But it's, it's always good to ask yourself first, okay, well, okay, what did I do wrong? How did I misread the situation? How did I misread myself? That's the Buddhist basically telling you, act only on good intentions, but not all good intentions are going to be skillful. This is this is the distinction you want to learn how to make. And as I said, there will be cases where it is it is the issue. The issue really is the other person. But then okay, you've learned something about that person. Sometimes you can be really well, you know, well-meaning, but you haven't read the situation properly. You don't have a full understanding. Not necessarily. I mean, you think about all those the characters in Charles Dickens, the, the well-meaning, you know, Mrs. What down the road was always sticking her nose into everybody else's business and has, has her own ideas about what's good for them. She means well. But she's not really looking at what they actually need. This is why when you want, when you know, when you're thinking about doing good for the world, it's always good to take care of your own mind first. You're not being doing good out of a neurotic desire just to feel good about yourself, and then try to impose your ideas of what's good on, on other people. There was a Dharma teacher years back who said he wouldn't want to live in a world where there was no suffering because he wouldn't be able to exercise his compassion. And, you know, and at first it sounds noble, but then you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you need other people to suffer so you can feel good about your compassion. There's something wrong there. <laughs> right, good, but lacking, right, right. Any questions in Zoom land? There's a hand over here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, usually the reason you got this passion about X is because you found something better in Y. And there will, however, be certain points in the practice where you come to realize, okay, everything I've been doing so far, like if you get really good at concentration, you get really stuck on concentration. And then, as John Vuong said, you got to get crazy about concentration to do it well. But then you begin to realize, okay, this has to be maintained all the time. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart at some point. It wouldn't be better that the Buddha promises are something where you don't have to keep maintaining it. Where would that be? And that's when you incline the mind. It's something you haven't experienced yet, but you've been promised that it's going to be better.
Okay, well, the Buddha says one of the ideals of your precepts is on the one hand that they are unbroken, but at the same time, they're conducive to concentration. And what that means is that you're not so worked up about it that you get anxious over your precepts. And to do that, you have to be more and more confident about knowing your own mind, because it is your intention behind the action that's going to determine whether you break the precept or not. And so this is one of, the, one of those areas where you know, in the forest tradition, they say it's not just the case that you know, virtue develops your concentration and concentration develops discernment. Sometimes your discernment and concentration have to come back to help to develop your, your virtue. Because in the practice of concentration, you get to know your mind a lot better. And all the different maneuverings and, and sort of underground maneuverings, you get to know them, you get to detect them. So that you can say, okay, I actually, my intention really was not to step on that bug, or my intention was not to not to do that, that kind of harm. Lastly, you learn how to trust your ability to read your own mind. You get a lot more at ease with the precepts. Okay. Okay, well, you don't want to throw them away. It's just the question of, are these the people you would continue to want to go to for advice or to look at, look at as people that you would admire, that you would want to emulate? And if the answer is no, it's okay, well, that's, that, that part of the friendship is gone. But I can still maintain the other parts of the friendship, that the topics we have in common, that the interests we have in common, points of view that we have in common. And maybe you can be a good friend, you know, Galena Mitta for that person. Now, if the person drinks, you say, you know, and wants to take you out drinking, you say, well, my doctor says no. And you don't have to say who your doctor is <laughs> <laughs> or, or what disease is being treated. <laughs> but traditionally, the Buddha does count as a doctor. So. <laughs> Does it require, does your job require that you engage in any lying or? Basically, does, does the job require that you break any of the precepts? One of the things about right, right livelihood that the Buddha asked was, does it involve exciting passion, aversion, and delusion in, in people? Like if it's an advertising job, I would say. <laughs> Didn't the onion say there was a new circle in hell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> you can't just do one thing in the path. You're going to be doing several things because you're, you're engaged in speech, you're engaged in action, you're engaged in where you're going to be mindful as you go through the day. All these things interact as you, as you progress in the path. <laughs> 